there is no time like the 2020s to start a company, to start a startup. You know, with the rise of the internet, you can learn anything at a very low cost, if not for free. You can build anything without needing to know how to code with tools like Bubble and Adalo. And you can get the word out about your products for free by using you know sites like Twitter, Product Hunt, and Reddit. There's no time like the 2020s to build a company. Yet one element of kind of entrepreneurship and company building that hasn't caught up with the times is venture capital. Unless you live you know in San Francisco or New York, chances are you may know what venture capital is, but you may not really know how it works. You may not know who the good VCs are. And you may not know how they think. So with this podcast of Forward Thinking Investors, I want to dive into this world. I want to help anyone in the world understand what is venture capital, who are the great venture capitalists, and how do they think about their day-to-day with the goal to help more people understand how it works so they can go out and raise capital for themselves. And they can build a billion dollar companies just like you know Larry did at Google or Travis did at Uber or Katrina did at Stitch Fix. That can be you, but it just takes some education. And I'm using this podcast as a medium to teach everyone more about venture capital. So if you want to learn about it, you want to dive in, you want to meet some awesome investors, stick around, listen to some episodes, and I, and I hope you enjoy. All right. How's it going, everyone? Welcome to another episode of Forward Thinking Founders, where we talk to founders about their companies, their visions for the future, and how the two collide. Today, we have an investor segment where we're talking to Daniela Strachman, who's a co-founder and GP at 1517. Welcome to the show. How's it going? Hey, Matt. Thanks for having me today. It's good. Yeah, excited to have you on. Um, I mean, there's so many, so many questions I have, like just from your background, 1517, you know, everything that you've done. But I think before we dive into kind of who you are and what you've done, love to just kind of hear high level, how'd you find yourself kind of in short at 1517? What was your path kind of into investing? Um, and we can learn more about 1517 and just yeah. kind of go from there. Yeah, my path was pretty wild. If, um, you know, if I had told somebody like, you know, over a decade ago that I would be in VC, I would have said, what's VC? I didn't know anything about it. I used to be an educator and a school principal. Um, I also used to be a psychometrician, which means someone who tests people for cognitive abilities uh, for clinical purposes and things like that. And so had I told that previous self that you're going to be, yeah, in venture capital, she wouldn't have known anything about venture capital. She'd been like, wait, you give money to people? What do you do? Um, But the short version of the story is that um, basically through philosophical alignment, I ended up at the Teal Foundation running the Teal Fellowship Program um, with the very early team there, including Peter getting it off the ground. And you know, to make a very long story short, because I was there for five years, we got to work, you know, it, it was a, a sort of amalgamation of things where we got to work on picking people that we thought would make for excellent fellows. And then we got to work with people who were fellows. And we also worked with people who were outside the applicant pool um, or sorry, in the applicant pool, but not fellows who we thought like might become a future fellow. So we got to sort of um, see a really like large data set basically of young people who wanted to do something different other than going to college and work with them and pick them and see what happened years later. And it really honed us in on um, what someone who may go on to do something bigger than they could even believe themselves kind of looks like. But one of the things that we saw was that 
it was really important to us that the fellowship wasn't just a, it wasn't just like a, a two year sort of respite from college, but more that it was two years to start something that could keep moving forward. And so we were always looking at what are the pathways that people continue going? And, you know, and one of those was if someone had started a startup that they'd go out and try to raise money. And it was interesting being on the nonprofit side. One thing I could talk about all day uh, on, though I don't know if anyone would want to hear about it, is that when the difference between being at a nonprofit versus for-profit, and when I was at the Teal Foundation, I could barely get investors to talk to me or to talk to fellows about anything we were doing. Um, you know, they would sort of pat me on the head, like, you know, because I would go to them and be like, hey, will you give feedback or would you would you look at a pitch deck? And, you know, having been a, an educator before this, my whole mindset is on development and feedback. And they were like, oh, they're there, dear. We don't really do that. Like, that's not that's not what we do in venture. And five years in, we saw some really extraordinary outcomes from not only the people we picked, but, you know, the, the nurturing therein that went into these people. And, you know, some of those are people like Dylan Field from Figma. Um, people like Vitalik Buterin with Ethereum, Ritesh Agarwal with Oil Rooms, Laura Deming with the Longevity Fund, Austin Russell with Luminar, um, you know, and that's just a handful of people. Um, you know, it's not like, you know, Paul Gu from Upstart, like they did, I could just go on and on. And so five years in, we were like, wow, these would have been really great investable opportunities from like a very early stage standpoint. And myself and Michael thought, you know, the fellowship is on rails, you know, we sort of built out what this program looks like. We've groomed a team who can take this on. And maybe what we do is, uh, you know, our mantra is kind of go big or go home. And we thought, well, maybe there can be a fellowship 2.0 that's a venture fund. And so we took that idea to Peter almost seven years ago at this point. And we said, hey, you know, mea culpa, we want to leave the foundation to start this venture fund because we just, we think we've learned a ton here and we think we can take it to the next step. And we thought he was going to be upset that we wanted to leave. Instead, he was thrilled. He was so overjoyed. He's like, this is such a great idea. You know, let's do this. And he committed as an anchor LP on the spot. And we weren't pitching him for money at all. Like we didn't have a pitch deck. We didn't even know how much money to raise. We were like, maybe we should be a $10 million fund. And then he said, well, maybe you should, you should really think about being a $15 million fund. And we're like, okay, I guess we'll be a $15 million fund. And then on the spot, he committed as an anchor saying like, I'll help get you started. But then we had to go out and do what every founder needs to do. I think it's really fun to be a founder GP because we have to go out and raise money and get rejected a lot and hear a lot of bullshit lines from people and also be really thrilled and humbled by the investors who do invest in us. So it's like we get to ride that ride too. So that's just a little bit about how we got started. All right. So this, this is great. So, you know, lots of questions come to mind. I think the first question, and you don't have to, you can answer as much as you want. Obviously, you know, a potential answer could reveal some of your secret sauce. You don't have to share that. But like, when you enter, when you, when you, you know, meet, you know, tons of people that have decided to potentially, or thinking about opting out of college or have opted out of college, or kind of doing like, they want to, they want to think big, they want to go big. Um, you know, oftentimes the same, these same personas, they, they super big ambition. They may not have the skill set to back. They may potentially have it, but it's unclear. How do you like, you know, separate someone that has the stuff from someone that might have the stuff from someone who like doesn't have the stuff. Um, if, if that makes sense. Yeah, absolutely. There's a few things. And I, I feel like very proud of us as a team at 1517, because just recently 
we've started coming up with our own language for what some of these characteristics look like. Because especially when pitching our fund to potential investors, they ask these questions. They're like, what do you look for? And we're like, we look for, you know, we used to say thing, like, things like we look for people who are like hyper curious. Like that is something that we look for because um, you don't know where your startup is going to go and what it's going to be. And, you know, pivots are very real. Uh, in in many different senses, and you got to be open to things. And I think what happens when you use normal language with people is they go, oh, well, I know somebody who's curious, but they're not like someone I would invest in. Or, you know, I always tell people, you know, I have um, wonderful, brilliant cousins uh, who are in their 20s, um, and they're very curious. Um, but what I'm talking about is like two standard deviations out. I'm curious, and we don't have a word for that. Um, at least, you know, my um, English vocabulary is not so in-depth that I'm like, oh, it's this particular trait. So we've come up with some of our own. Um, I'll just go over a couple here. One of them uh, we've actually used for a long time, and it's called hyperfluency. And it's really, it's about communication, and it is um, about depth. And so when someone is fluent in a language, it's like, you know, my, my understanding is that when you're really fluent, you know it because you start dreaming in that language. It's like, okay, this is totally in you. And we are looking for that in people where they are fluent technically um, and in the business sense as well. And oftentimes we're backing teams, not just one person. So we're kind of looking for this, you know, it's interesting, your, your team and what will become your company is this entity that is bigger than you. It's like when I'm working with Michael, me and Michael are bigger than the entity of just Danielle. And so it's not that we're looking for all these traits in one person. Um, but with hyperfluency, we're looking for a team that can talk backwards and forward ad nauseum about the space. You can just tell they're eating, breathing, drinking. And there's something about the excitement that the people have about the space that is also very palatable for us. Um, people like Austin Russell, he's, he's a funny one because uh, you know, the founder of Luminar Technologies that went public in December, but we've worked with him through the fellowship and through the fund over eight years. And he needs a little time to warm up. You Like I, whenever he interviews on TV and stuff, I'm like, oh man, I wish they had like warmed him up for 10 minutes and then got him in front of the camera because he takes a little bit, but then all of a sudden someone will ask him a question. Someone will ask about like, well, Elon says this about LiDAR and he's like, He's like a monster in the best sense of the word, where he's like, well, blah, 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 blah. And he's like rapid fire. He's got the thing. And it's also this thing where you can tell people are like excited and activated by what they're working on. We, uh, we've been working with a, a young woman who's working on a novel technology. And as soon as we got off the call, I was like, oh my God, she is so hyperfluent and so excited about this. The other piece of hyperfluency that's really important to us is that the person can scaffold their communication because as a team, you're not just gonna be working with super geeks in your arena. You're gonna be working with all kinds of people. We always tell people when they pitch us uh, to talk to us, like they're the dumbest, like that we are the gold, the, sorry, we are the dumbest golden retrievers they've ever met and like tell us about the tech in that way. Um, and it's also important to us in another way because we've also found that there are people who are very bright and can talk about things, but they do this thing that we've named the cloud of abstractions. This is something we look for as a negative signal where someone is so up in the sky, but then when we're like, okay, cool, but what are you doing on Friday to get this done? And they keep going back up into the stratosphere. And to us, it kind of means there's nothing tangible there. It's like, okay, this person has learned how to sound incredibly intelligent. 
but I don't think they could manage their way out of a paper bag. Um, so, so that's important as well. Um, you know, there's a lot of normal stuff that we look for things like the ability to build, you know, for the first couple of years, they don't need to be, you know, they're not going to be the whole team who makes this thing, but they need to get started. Um, the founders need to not be afraid of doing sales. Mostly for us, what we find is that, you know, founders are really doing sales all the way through their series A before hiring a team, um, and making that sales playbook. Um, and then lastly, I would say what we look at is team market and product in that order, because the product is like, it's your baby. It's going to change the most. We don't even know what it's going to develop into, um, but we're really betting on that team. So those are just a few sort of do's and don'ts. Well, that is awesome. I want to like clip that. I feel like that right there, just for any founder that's listening, you know, it's such a, such a golden, just golden knowledge there. So I appreciate you sharing that. Obviously, you know, as you mentioned earlier, um, probably a lot of that, if not all of that has been informed by like your time in this space and work in like, you know, at the foundation at the Teal Fellowship now 1517, you know, I'm kind of curious, I'm sure people ask you this, you know, a fair amount of times, but I I'm going to ask as well, what was it, I guess a two prong question, um, you know, you already gave us a little bit of, a, of some context on what it was like working at the, the Teal Foundation, but like, what was it like working with Peter, like, wh what was he like? You know, what is he like? You know, I feel like we all get his uh, his persona and what the media says about him, which of course is not, um, I personally don't think that's the whole story. So what's the other side of the story? Like, what's it like working with Peter? You know, he's, um, I'm, I'm sort of grinning a little bit because I'm like debating whether to share a more recent Peter story. I think I'll share it. I wasn't there for it, but my, Michael was. So it'll be sort of a secondhand story. But my, my take on working with Peter is that, um, I learned a couple of really interesting things. One, I really learned how to think about incentives. I had never thought about that before. Like I, I had um, co-founded a charter school and ran it before being at the Teal Foundation. I ran my own tutoring company before that. Um, and I didn't, I think I think I thought about incentives in a way, but um, there was something about being in the Teal environment that just made me think about incentives a lot more and how things like systemically are motivated. Um, and it was sort of this process of osmosis, I would say, of like just being in that environment made me think about those things more. And then more directly, what I would say is that working with Peter, he is, um, I, I, you know, I hate when people are like, I'm a first principles thinker. I'm like, no, you're not. Like, just, it's, it's really hard to be a first principles thinker. It's really difficult. Peter is one of the few um, that I, I believe is a very true first principles thinker. Um, people will sometimes make fun of like the awkward pauses and in interviews and stuff. He's just actually really thinking. And what I really appreciate about him is that he is always updating his information. And I think for some people, they're used to people who become stagnant and they're like, oh, the Peter line on this particular area is this. But then, you know, a year or two later, Peter will, or sometimes the next day, Peter will do a 180 and be like, mm, now my take is this. Um, and I really appreciate that. I think it's a really interesting, interesting trait um, and just very, very admirable. Like he's incredibly thoughtful. Uh, and the funny story I was going to tell is Michael was just out at Hereticon, um, you know, and he was sitting at dinner with Peter and some other people, small group. And apparently this woman came up to the table um, 
who like sat down and was like, I'm high on acid and, and just sat down at the table. And I asked Michael, I was like, did she know she was sitting down at Peter's table? Like, I'm really confused. And he's like, I don't know. I don't know if she knew where she sat down, but she sat down and she started making all these observations about people at the table and was like, this guy, like she had been listening to conversation and she like pointed at Michael and was like, this guy's really creative. This person has like kind of weird motivations, this person that like, and like, at least, I don't know, it sounded kind of spot on. And um, she said something like about how like, you know, acid or whatever makes her perceive in like a more clear way. And apparently Peter piped up and was sort of like, well, you know, um, you know, maybe it's just that you think you are perceiving in a more clear way when you're on acid or whatever. And I was like, oh my God, Peter's being a trip sitter. Like that's hilarious. Like mind blown. <laughs> um, so I love that. It's like, he's doing that thing right there. of just like, I'm just going to say what I think right here at, in this very awkward, strange scenario. And he's very willing to do that. That's awesome. I appreciate you sharing all of that. I, 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 uh, have been influenced like by many of, of, uh, you know, millions of founders also influenced by him, but not just him, but everything that he's built that you've built that you're building now, like the whole, this whole part of like venture is such a, I think, special, special part. Um, right. and I'm, I'm curious to learn, you know, from you, you know, something that Peter, you, you just said that you learned from Peter was like the importance of incentives and like taking a hard look at incentives and things like that. I'm kind of curious. So like a founder is listening to this, maybe they're 16, 17, maybe they're 35 or 84, you know, any age. Yeah. And they like want to get into this game of startups. Um, or maybe you could also answer if an investor wants to get into the game of startups and they want to become a VC or a syndicate leader or something like that. What are some, um, I guess, observations that you've made on incentives that could be good for people wanting to get into the game to know that may not be obvious to like an onlooker kind of looking into the industry, um, if that if that makes sense? That's interesting. I'm going to let that question percolate in the back of my mind, and I'm going to answer a slightly different question first, and then I'll see what has percolated. Um, what I thought you were going to ask is sort of like, hey, advice for anyone wanting to get into VC. And what I always tell people is that, you know, I think operating experience is really helpful. I meet a lot of young people, especially who are like, I want to get into VC. And I'm like, you've never hired somebody before. You've never raised money before. You've never done any of these things. And I don't think you have to have a wildly successful startup to like be good at being an investor. Um, I certainly have not had that, um, but I have had the experience with my charter school of like hiring a team, having to drive towards mission, having to fire people, um, you know, having to find funding, um, having to build something from me and my co-founder to a school that is now 400 people. Like, like it gives you a lot of empathy. Um, so I think that's important, but I think on the incentive side, I guess the, like the thing that comes up for me about the incentive side and maybe a more accurate way to say this is that being around, I sometimes lovingly call it the Peterverse. Um, he thinks a lot about the, the insights of Rene Girard and mimetic thinking. And I think that's a lot of those incentives is thinking about 
um, what is driving you to do the things that we're doing. And we are often extremely blind that the things that are driving us are not our like internal motivations, but more like the comparisons we make with other people. And so I think that's a lot in VC where people are following signals. They're looking for, you know, um, other people's conviction to say, well, this person knows what they're doing. I'm going to ride along with this. Um, or I think sometimes people get into VC because it looks like glamorous and interesting. And I mean, I can say now having a fund that has been successful, like there are parts of it that are really great, like, but we're seven years in, like, so it hasn't been, it's been like really fun and it has been really, um, humbling and it's been really hard sometimes. Um, you know, it, it really, um, it's a, it's a gauntlet that you go through. And if you get to the other side of that gauntlet, you just go run another gauntlet afterwards. It's, you know, I'm not like retiring. I'm not like, I'm done now. Like I want to keep doing this forever. But what I see happen with a lot of fund managers is they start it because they think it's going to be like glitzy, but then they start sort of crushing under the weight of having to actually operate a venture capital firm. I think it's one thing that is not talked about at all. Is like there's a whole operation side to VC. Um, it's not just I don't know going to parties and making it rain money and like and all this stuff. So I would just tell people like you have to take a close look at why you're doing the thing that you're doing. Um, and it it's so hard because we mostly have the blinders on. I mean, I'd almost like recommend a journaling activity of like you know asking yourself some sort of prompt, like, if I'm being memetically driven to do this, what are the reasons for that? Like trying to outline it or something, because I think that's, it gets really tricky. This is fascinating. Um, and I, I couldn't agree more, uh, you know, being in this industry as kind of an outsider myself in Phoenix, Arizona, I'm just observing how people act and how I act. I'm like, whoa, like, why are things this way? Right. So that's, that's a really, really good observation. Yeah. If someone wanted to learn more about you, find you online, learn more about 1517, um, where, where, where can they find you? And I guess the second part of that question of, is a founder thinks that they could be a great fit for what you're doing um, for an investment. What's kind of your funnel? How do you kind of, kind of uh, want founders to reach out to you? Yeah, absolutely. We are online in all the normal channel channels, um, you know, uh, Twitter, LinkedIn, all that good stuff. We have a website, 1517fund.com. Um, if people want to reach out, I, I love getting cold outreaches that are personalized. I don't love getting the cold re outreaches that are like, here's my canned spam. <laughs> I'm like, I don't like canned spam. Um, but if someone wants to send me a personalized email saying like, hey, I heard about 1517 and you know, I am, uh, I have no BA and no BS and I am wanting to work with you guys. Like, you know, I'd love to hear from them. So my email is danielle at 1517fund.com. Um, and we also have a contact form on our website that asks more specific questions that kind of go through sort of like our funnel questions of like, hey, is this person going to be a fit um, for what we're looking for? And I would say we take a call with something like 85 plus percent of people who write in because we do not expect people we're working with to have a network um, or to have a warm intro. Like we actually don't care about that a lot. And there's so many times that we have just found serendipitously that we're like, gosh, I really don't want to like this pitch that I'm about to hear. And then we get on with the founder and we're like, 
oh, I love this pitch. Like, how did that happen? So we very much believe in interacting with people because you are a 3D human, but all your materials are 2D. So they're never going to do you justice, even when you're a great founder later on. It's just the nature of the work. All right. Well, this has been fascinating. I really appreciate you spending time on the podcast. Thank you so much for coming on. Thanks for having me, Matt.